Last week we began looking at Romans 8.28, and this week we will continue. And last week we looked at the beginning of this verse, and we looked at two, two truths that the beginning, the first half of this verse teaches us. And number one, we said that God causes all things to work together for good, that He is sovereign, we said, total control. We, we said that even, even sin, even our sin, others' sin, cannot frustrate this sovereignty and, and from God carrying all things to a certain end, that nothing can thwart that, that and therefore we can feel the assurance of Romans 8.28. And secondly, last week, we said that God is good. He's good. You know, for, for Him to be sovereign but not good, that would be a scary thing. To have a ruler that has all power but isn't good would be a scary, uh, woeful thing. But yet, for God to have sovereignty and total goodness, therefore, now we can feel the weight of the assurance and the, the, the goodness of what Paul is saying here in Romans 8.28, that no matter our circumstances, no matter... God is good. That we, we can't determine we can't determine who we think God, God is through our circumstances. We have to sift our circumstances through who we know God to be. He's good. And and, and we looked at that last week, and, and Romans 8:28 goes beyond that. And so today I want to look at the second half of, of this verse and build on that. And, and it's still the same main point that we looked at last week, you see it on your handout. This is what Paul is assuring us with. Again, that we can be assured because God causes. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose, conforming us to the image of Christ. And, and again, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week, guaranteeing our glorification. And so today, why can Paul say this? Why, why can we feel assurance through Romans 8.28. And so building on last week's points, you'll see in your handout, Paul can assure believers that God causes all things to work together for good because God is sovereign. He is good. We saw that last week. Thus, God alone, here it is, can be trusted to determine. God alone, because He's sovereign and because He's good, He alone can be trusted to determine what the good outcome or purpose is, and when it's experienced. God alone gets to determine this. Not only is He sovereign, not only is He good, but because of that, He alone is qualified to determine what the good is and when He brings the good about. And this is another huge point where we can get sideways real quickly. But all of this ties together. I mean, when the doctor calls and the, the cancer has returned, when something happens to a loved one, when someone hurts you intentionally, when, when someone you love is hurt intentionally, when you lose your job, when you lose your spouse, we wonder, where's the good? How in the world, how in the world can any good come about? We cannot see how any good could possibly come through this. And it's at these times that this promise of Romans 8.28 can seem unkept, that, that somehow God's character has failed. And, and we'll dive into this in Romans 9. That, that's the real issue in all of this. Can God be trusted? Does He make mistakes? Is He faithful? 
And, and because of our limited perspective, because of our, our limited ability to perceive, because we don't see things as, as God sees them, we come to some false conclusions. And I think the enemy wants us to come to false conclusions. False interpretations even of what Paul is saying here. And we looked at that last week with, with open theism, that somehow God is just up there reacting to what you and others do. Waiting to see what you do, and then he's scrambling. No, God is sovereign. God causes. And we look specifically at Joseph. And how many times in, in, in Genesis, specifically in chapter 45, but also 50, did God, Joseph said, God sent me here. Speaking to his brothers who had sinned, who had done all those heinous things, and Joseph said, no, 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 God sent me here. God is ultimately the one who is sovereign over me being here. And, and again, the Old Testament is full. Of, you even go to Esther. The, in Esther, when, when I believe, what is it, Mordecai, when he says to Esther, for how do you know, Esther, that you are not queen for such a time as this? How do you know that God has not put you here, right here, Esther, right now for this very moment? You don't know. But God is sovereign and does know. And God makes sure His people are where they need to be, when they need to be, why they need to be there. And, and again, nothing, nothing that you go through, 1 Corinthians 13, nothing that you go through is going to be unique to you. But with every temptation, 1 Corinthians 13, 10, 13 says, with every circumstance, God will be faithful and He will provide a way, not out of it, He will provide a way, that verse says, to what? Get through it. And the, the temptation is this. Again, if, if all, when you and I get in trouble, all we want is the eject cord, right? We just want to, where's the rip cord to get out of this thing? And listen, if you get out too quick, just like with our kids, if the punishment is too quick, what happens? They don't learn the lesson. And if it's too harsh, you crush them. And God alone is perfect. And with every temptation, listen to me, He will provide a way to get through it. Namely, He will be the way to get through it. And, and, and when we look at the Scriptures, when we walk together with believers through life, we begin to see just how faithful God is. That's part of even the reason we gather together is to be encouraged by others to see just how faithful God is. You know, we sent out the email Sunday. I'm not sure she's here, but Irene's mother, uh, one of our members, passed away on, on Thursday, and, and I happened to be in the room with her and her father when, when her mother died. Her, her mother died while I was sharing the gospel with her father. She died listening to the gospel that she had been saved by. How about that? Being reminded. Listen, God's faithful. But, but we need a body and we need to be encouraged. And that's what this body does. It's in, but, but not only that, it's imperative that we as a individually grab hold and grasp what Paul is saying here. If we're going to really mine Romans 8.28 and get out of it everything that we're supposed to, 
we've got to grasp what Paul is saying here. Not only is God alone sovereign, not only is God alone good that we saw last week, but, but God alone gets to determine the good. The challenge is, if we're honest, you and I want to tell God what the good is. Here's the good, God. Here's the only way this can be good. And God's saying, no, I I got a perspective that's a little bit different than you. And so so if we're going to really understand Romans 8.28, we've got to allow God to get to determine what the good is. And when I say determine what the good is, here you see it on your handout. A, God, we've got to be settled in this. God gets to determine what the good is. We want the prerogative, we want the right to determine what the good is. And and again, in our weak, already, not yet kind of state, we're not qualified to determine what the good is. We're not who we will be one day. We're not all-knowing, we're not sovereign. We still battle, as we've seen in Romans 8, indwelling sin. We're not, we're not qualified to ultimately determine what the good is. Listen, it will, because if we're honest, listen, I, it will always be selfish. It will almost always be earthly-minded, because that's all we know. And you see it on your handout. We're tempted to define good on our own terms and according to our culture. Success, health, security, financial prosperity, security, all those things. Listen, that's where we see good, but that is not always good. That's not always good. And if that's what, if that's what we determine the good by, Paul is wrong. And if that's what we sift our own lives through, the circumstances, then this promise can seem unkept. Bad things happen. Bad things crush, even us, us, even us as believers. We don't experience that worldly good, if you will. And, and that's really how we've abused this passage. We, we want to play God. We want to tell God what the good is. And, and, and let me give you an example. This is, this is a real-life example. This I have heard this. I have listened to people tell people this, and when they and they will do this, and they some of you may have, they'll quote Romans 8:28. This is a real life example. So what happens is a marriage ends for whatever reason. And I have heard people go up to the person whose spouse has left them, and they have said this: Don't worry. God has what this means is God has a better spouse waiting for you, and they'll quote Romans 8:28. I've heard that. I mean, listen, I was as graciously, kindly, and gently, and graciously as I can, that is wrong on so many levels. That is so wrong. But, but that's, that's how you and I think. That's clearly what God has to have in store for this. He's clearly got to have a better spouse in store for you. That's wrong on so many levels. You're allowing the world, and you're allowing our culture... Again, we even as a church, we've got to be careful that we don't communicate a message that married people are whole and single people are not whole. That's wrong on so many levels. Listen, 
Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. I'm not arguing against marriage. But 1 Corinthians 7 also says, Sometimes singleness, God will use singleness to promote the gospel in ways that a married person can't. Because he says in 1 Corinthians 7, a married person is going to have a divided interest. They're going to have to worry about their spouse and how to please the Lord. But a single person only has to worry about how to please the Lord. So, so again, we've got to be real careful that we're allowing the world, I'm not, I'm not allowing the world, that we're allowing the word to shape even has, how we see singleness in marriage. And, and again, what if, what if God doesn't, what if they never get remarried? But what if instead God takes the circumstances and draws that single person to himself and God becomes a spouse to that person and God becomes their satisfaction and God's be, God becomes what that other person wasn't? Would that not be good? If that person that's now single now totally devotes their life to the Lord and is totally satisfied in the Lord and sees the goodness of the Lord and just says, I don't need another spouse to do for me what God was always intended to do. Would that not be the greater good? You see what I'm saying? How we allow the world and their definitions to dictate what is good? Again, God could, be, God could take what that person meant for evil, that spouse leaving you meant for evil, and God would take your relationship with him to a whole other level. Would that not be good? That, that's, what, that's a better application of what Paul is saying here in Romans 8.28 than, oh, don't you worry, it means God's got somebody better for you. And, but here's my point. You see it on your handout. We have to trust God not only to determine the good, but to work out the good however he sees fit. Not only to determine the good, but to work it out. Faith. The good has to be determined through the lens of the gospel and through God's character and God's kingdom advancement and our sanctification, not worldly pleasures. Listen, and I say that cautiously. I don't know what it's like to lose some of what y'all have lost, but I do know that God gets to determine the good. I do know that God alone is sovereign. I do know that God alone is qualified to determine the good. I do know that God desires that we have godly wisdom over worldly wisdom. Will that be easy? No. Will it be biblical? Yes. Will it always feel good? No. Will it be ultimately for our good? Yes. Will, will it be of worldly good? No. Will it be of kingdom good? Yes. God gets to determine what the good is. And he alone is qualified to do that. But, but also, B, God gets to determine when the good is experienced. And, and the when can be just as huge as the what with regards to the good. Paul is not saying that God will reverse everything evil you've experienced on this side of eternity. Listen, there, there's some of you in here who have lost your spouse. There, there ain't nothing that's going to replace that person. You've lost other things. There's nothing this side of eternity that's going to replace that. It's going to make it right. I mean, I, I, we, we, we hear Jeremiah 29, 11 quoted all the time, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. That's a great verse. 
But guess, get even the ones who experienced that verse, guess how they experienced that verse? By being shipped off to Babylon for spending 70 years in Babylonian captivity. 70 years they waited to get that verse. And most of whom, most of whom went to Babylonian captivity, they didn't live for 70 years back then. So most, who gave, most of whom were alive when, when Jeremiah and God shared that promise, you know what they did? They died, having not received the promise. Go to Hebrews 13. Many died without having received the promise. That necessitates the resurrection because, again, God's going to make sure he fulfills his promises in the resurrection. First, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For as many as are the promises of God in Christ Jesus they are yes, it may require God resurrecting your dead body in order to fulfill that promise, but God will fulfill the promise. He will prosper you. But let's be honest. When we hear God's going to prosper me, be honest. When do, we make, when do we want that to happen? Right now. Right now. I want to call Suncoast Bank, and I want to see some zeros to the left of the decimal because there's an infinity zeros to the right of the decimal. I want to see zeros to the left of the decimal. A lot of them. And that's not necessarily the good. I would say for many of us, God giving us a ton of money would actually be bad. That'd be about as silly as me giving my kids a ton of money right now. They waste it. And the reality is, you see it on your handout, the reality we must accept and trust a sovereign good God with is that many things that we suffer here on the earth will contribute to our good only by refining our faith and strengthening our hope. I mean, that's really the emphasis of Jeremiah 29, 11. These people have disobeyed God. They have adulterated the covenant. They're going into Babylonian captivity, by the way, which God said he was going to do. God's faithful on both sides. And what does he do? He offers them hope in the midst of their trial. He basically says to them, this isn't the end. Your sin will not compromise my faithfulness. Romans 8.28. I mean, you go back to Joseph like we saw last week. How long did it take before then? How long did it take for him to go through everything he went through in order for God to get him to the exact place where God wanted him to be so that he could provide food in the midst of a famine for an entire generation? Long time. Long time. People's character, again, what God cares more about is your character. I don't think it's ironic, I don't think it's beyond God, to at the same time we're studying Romans 28, 28, I'm dealing with the county on how we leave this property. And on Thursday, I'm getting an email from them, and they're telling me a specific vehicle that went out the property the wrong way. And in the midst of this, I'm saying, God, what are you doing with my character? Because my, my character doesn't really want to respond to emails that kindly that say that. Just being honest. But, but, but God is doing something to me where he's saying, Chris, I care more about your character than I do your, than your comfort. 
I, I don't think that's past God's sovereignty for that to be happening right as we're dealing with Romans 8, 28. God, what are you doing? You're growing Chris. You're growing us. Maybe. And, and again, the idea that Romans 8, 28... All promises material wealth or physical well-being or that everything's going to balance out here on this earth, that is, a, that is a Western perversion of the good. We, we have allowed, listen, we have allowed the, the prosperity gospel to infiltrate us, to sneak in. Just, just like in James 2, he says, see to it that no one adds to their faith a spirit of personal favoritism. James is saying, do not allow your faith to be polluted with a spirit of personal favoritism. I would encourage you that you and I have to fight not allowing the prosperity gospel to pollute our faith. Because it's everywhere. And if we're not careful, we will turn the good into an exclusively materialistic, health-oriented, well-being definition. And by the way, a definition that really only works in America. Export that, export that to the Bahamas right now. Candy, tell your, tell, your, tell your brother to export that. It doesn't work. It's not meant to work that way. The beauty of this verse is that in the midst of that, God is still refining their character. In the midst of that, God has not forgotten about them. In the midst of that, God is doing something. And it will be good. And again, a, a real life, you know, uh, we we a real life example. Someone loses their their job. I've heard people go up to people and say this. Oh, that just means that God has a better job waiting on you. Romans eight twenty eight. Really? Is that what that means? Might not. Maybe they were materialistic. Maybe they loved money that that job provided more than they loved God. Maybe that job was their real hope and security. Maybe that job was their idol. And maybe a gracious God is removing them from that job so that they'll learn to trust Him and not a job. They may never have a high-paying job again in their life. They may scrape by for the rest of their life. But God may be their portion and their strength. That's good. That's Romans 8.28. And God gets to, God alone it gets to determine that. Listen, because let's be honest, you and I would never do that. We would never voluntarily remove ourselves from a high-paying job, take a look. It, it, it's the same in my world. I'm amazed that pastors never get called to smaller churches. God never calls pastors to smaller churches. We're not immune to it. Is that really the good? Is the good, am I less of a pastor if 300 people come here versus 500? Maybe. Maybe not. We, we can't determine Romans 8.28 based on our own determination. But we do know this, what Paul is saying is you can trust God. Because he's sovereign, because he's good. And again, you see it in your handout. The difficulty is that we tend to interpret good from a narrow and materialistic 
perspective when in reality, from God's perspective, the good extends beyond what we see. This is 2 Corinthians 4, looking not to what is seen, but what is unseen. Our ultimate good is God's glory. And God is ultimately glorified when His children, as Paul John Piper says, the thesis of His whole ministry, God is most glorified when God's people are most satisfied in Him. That's the good. Even in Romans 3, we saw that God uses suffering to reform, refine our faith and conform us and to do what? Ultimately pr- pr- produce hope, and hope doesn't disappoint. And God is, more, God is more concerned with our character, all right, than He is anything else. That we reflect Christ. And, and the good, oftentimes, that God has in mind is almost exclusively His kingdom, or the orientation is around His kingdom. How can these, how can my people be most useful to glorify me and my kingdom? Again, he's, he's interested in a, a much higher good, a strong, i.e. a stronger faith. Again, even in verse 29, we'll look at it next week. Here's the good. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined what? To become conformed to the image of his son. That's what God cares about. In, in salvation, understand this. Go all the way back to Genesis 3. God created you and, and, and God's original creation you and I, or God's creation rather, reflected Him perfectly, and then sin entered. We were designed, we were created to be His representatives. And what God is doing in, in, in redemption is recreating you. He's taking you back to the original creation, and that involves getting rid of a lot of sin. That involves getting a lot of things out of my life and your life that don't rightly reflect Him. And He uses circumstances to do that. He uses suffering to do that. He uses circumstances to transform us. That's why he could say in Philippians 1.29, it had been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe, but to suffer. Paul says that I may, in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, but also what? The fellowship of his sufferings. Paul discovered the reality that Christ was enough. And he didn't do that through prosperity. And you see it on hand that the ultimate good is God conforming us to the image of His Son. And I, I read, and I, I've, I've struggled whether rather to read this or not, because I, it's, it's, it can be difficult for, to hear and emotional, but my wife sent me something this week. And I, I've read it probably eight times and more, more than that. It's from a Bible study that she, Proverbs 31 Ministries, and listen to this perspective. And I'm going to read it, and, and, I, and it's going to be hard for some. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I know that, but in, in, a, good, in, a, in a good way. Listen, what she, listen, Lisa Turkhurst wrote this. She says, I remember the day Art and I... S- I remember the day Art and I settled in our hearts that we would choose to trust God's love for us and pursue a relationship with him no matter what. We were in the hospital with our middle daughter who was six weeks old. She seemed like a perfectly healthy baby until an allergic reaction landed us in the intensive care unit. 
The doctors told us on the fourth day of our visit that she needed surgery and that and they did not expect her to survive. They gave us five minutes to tell our baby goodbye. My heart was shattered. I so desperately wanted to scoop her up and run out of the hospital. I wanted somehow to breathe life into hers. I wanted to take her place. I could handle my own death so much easier than hers. Art and I prayed over Ashley. We said our goodbyes, and then with tears running down our face, we let her go. When Art took me outside of the hospital parking lot, I collapsed in his arms. He gently cupped my face in his hands and reminded me Ashley was God's child to give and, and she was God's child to take back. Lisa, God loves Ashley more than we do, he told me. We must trust his plan. And here was the thing that was profound to me and what, what it boils down to. Art then asked me to do something and it changed my whole perspective on my relationship with God. Here it was. He said to his wife, we have to get it settled in our hearts that we will love and trust God no matter the outcome of Ashley's surgery. You know, I struggled through that all week asking myself the hard questions. Do I love God because he's been so good to me? Or do I love God because he's forgiven me in my sin? Will, will, will I love God? Will I stand up here and preach God boldly, confidently, unashamedly, no matter what? And listen, that's a scary thing to ask. Because we can think we're big and bad and strong until. Until. And you find out real quick what's down in the well, what really is our trust and our hope. You find it out real quick only in suffering. And sometimes a gracious God is going is to walk us through something and allow us to walk through something so the, so, the da- so the light on our dashboard can come on and sometimes we might be exposed for what we're really hoping in. That's the challenge. Because everyone can love God when we're healthy, when our kids are healthy, when our spouse is loving us, when we've got a job. Everyone can do that. And the world sees that. But it's a whole other deal when a people will follow their God no matter what. When, when we can say what Job said in Job 13, 15, Though you slay me, yet I will exult in you. That's a different story. And she says in here, she's very honest, she says, I resented my husband when he said for me to trust God that way. I feared it would give the impression that it was okay for Ashley not to survive. He says, she goes on to say, she, but she knew that was right. She says, it was, as, it was as if the more I fell into God's arms, the less the pain of the moment seared my heart, feeling the power of God took away the fear of the unknown. I stopped thinking about the what-if scenarios and let my soul simply say, okay, God, in this minute, I choose to rest with you. She says, that day we settled our love for God, not just for this situation, but for all time. She goes on to say, but both, she, she, she lost a sister, and so she was saying she's been on both sides of the, 
coin here. She says, but both situations have taught me that no matter God's answer, our hearts can be settled to trust and love Him. I don't have to understand, I just have to trust. This kind of total surrender brings about a depth of peace and relationship with God that you can't get any other way. That's the reality. But that's the good. That, that God be the God of a people that trust Him no matter what. The world sees that. The world sees that. And our definition of good has got to be God's definition of good. And you see it on your handout. The good that God is more often focused on in pursuing is, the, is that our circumstances grow us spiritually. Grow us. That's what she's saying there. I mean, this whole context in Romans 8 is about our being adopted in hope, our waiting in hope. Isaiah, I think it's whatever, it's at 40, 29. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will rise up as eagles and soar. Those who wait. The promise here that Paul gives us is that nothing will touch our lives. Nothing will compromise our salvation. We won't always understand it, but nothing will compromise the promises that God has made to us through Christ. And that God will carry all things to a desired end, to an appointed end. And what God promises here is that after this time of suffering, we will see the all-satisfying beauty and greatness of God Himself. That's the why. That we would savor Christ more than anything else, even health. And I read this this week, and it stuck with me. And listen to this, it's the next fill-in. Maybe instead of asking God to get us out of the trouble, we should be asking God what we should be getting out of the trouble. I found that to be a profoundly uh, just corrective statement for me. Because if we're honest, again, and we're most concerned about just get me out of it. Just get me through it. And what if God's more concerned about what you get out of the trouble than just simply getting you out of the trouble? I, I, Johnny Erickson Tata, you, you, you know her. Again, she was paralyzed in a diving accident as a teen. She lived as a quadriplegic for over 70 years. I, I read this quote as I studied this week. She said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to push my wheelchair to the throne of Jesus. Notice I'll be walking. I'm going to thank him for every character refining work he did in me and through me because of the wheelchair. And then I'm going to ask Jesus to send this wheelchair straight to hell because it was only needed relevant because of the wreckage of sin. How about that attitude? You know what she's saying? I would have never been the person I was were it not for that wheelchair. God, thank you for the wheelchair. You know what she's saying? That wheelchair only served a purpose here on this earth. Because when we get to heaven, as we'll see next week, we'll be fully glorified. There won't be no wheelchairs. There won't be cancer. There won't be death. You won't lose your spouse. You won't lose your kids. You won't lose your job. All of that is this world oriented. The promise is that God will, for those who wait, those who persevere, God will redeem every single thing. It will not be 
wasted. It's refining you. It's conforming you. God's the good. He is the good. Even in Psalm 73, listen to what what the psalmist writes in, in Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. Whom and I, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 28. Uh, read verse 27. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. That's the good. That you would want, that I would want God more than anything else. That's why we have to let God determine the good. Not only is He sovereign, not only is He good, but that allows Him to determine the good. But lastly, you see on your handout, Paul can assure believers that God causes all things to work together for good because we're God's people by His doing and initiative. This promise is not for everyone. Do not quote Romans 8.28 to a non-believer. This promise is for those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. Now, if you want to tell them this is the way God loves us and this is the God they ought to repent and turn to, that's one thing. But listen, God works all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. You turn your back on God. You stiff-arm God. The good, listen, the good is going to be eternal separation from a holy God. That's what He's going to offer you because that's what you deserve. Galatians 6, 7 and 8, we reap what we sow. And I don't say that. I'm not excited about that in the sense. I'm just, I'm, I shared that Thursday with Irene's father. In a, in a very gentle, kind, loving way, I hope. And, and he said that about it. I was grateful for that. It's not a fun, it's not fun. But let, you see it in your handout. The blessing of Romans 8.28, the assurance that God is for you and not against you, is, only, is a promise that only believers enjoy. God is not for you. If you're, if you're opposed to Him, if you're not a believer, He's against you. He can be for you. He's for you in the sense that He has crucified Christ, but you're an enemy. You can repent today of your sins and you can be reconciled to Him. And just like that, Romans 8.28 can apply to you. That's the beauty of the mercy and the grace and the goodness of God. Even that, you and I would not orchestrate it like that. And again, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, listen to what he says. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. This is a promise for his people. This verse applies to God's people. 
And, and he gives two characteristics in, in, two characteristics in Romans 8 that, that say that. You see, there are two characteristics. Only those who love God can claim the promise that God works all things together for good. And, and again, as soon as I say that, this word's tossed around willy-nilly. We love everything. Everybody loves everything. And so I think it's crucial. You see it there on there. Loving God is desiring God himself beyond his gifts. You desire him, not his gifts. Listen, if I only pursue Karen for what she can offer me, that's not love. That's called selfishness. 1 Corinthians 13 gets determined the biblical definition of love. It does not look after its own. Loving God for what he can offer is not, you're thinking about yourself. That's not a love for God. Love for God, secondly, is delighting in God himself beyond his gifts. And love for God is being satisfied in God beyond his gifts. This is that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Lord, we're going to trust you even if you don't bring us out of this fiery furnace. You know what? We're going to trust you. That's love. It's seeing what we have in Christ. Again, love for God as well is treasuring Him above all else in every circumstance. That's why Paul says again in Philippians 3 that I may know Christ. What was the gift? Knowing Christ. But it's not only those who love God, it's those who are called according to His purpose. And again, we get all caught up here. John, John 6, 37 makes it clear. No one comes to God unless He draws them. What He's saying, even our saving faith was enabled and initiated by the grace of God. Stop fighting over this. Stop arguing about the security that offers. God has to prompt and initiate salvation due to our sinfulness. We're dead, Ephesians 2, 1. He has crucified his son publicly on a cross that whosoever would call upon him. God initiated that. This marks the people to whom Romans 8 applies. Those who love God and those who are called by God. Believers. God has called you, believer. He has summoned you into a relationship with him. It is a summons to be conformed to his image. It is not a summons to use him. As a genie, it is a summons to repent and give your life to Him and for His glory. And what He has promised is that in the end, this is Romans 8, 28, the present sufferings will not be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. You give your life to me. You lay down your weapons and you change sides. That's literally what repentance is. You turn your back on sin and you live for me and I will make it so worth your while in the end that nothing you suffered on this side of eternity will be worth mentioning. That's the promise. That's salvation. It's not taking his, self, it's not taking his forgiveness and then going living for our own selves and then when we die we get to just say, hey, I... I got this card, I get, it's like Monopoly, I got this get-out-of-jail-free card that I can just throw out on the table anytime, any place. No, it's living for His glory. And you see here both sides, if you will, viewpoints of salvation. From our viewpoint, we love God. But from God's viewpoint, we're called. Listen, I'm not smart enough to know how all that works. 
Here's what I do know. Where the gospel is preached, people get saved. The power's in the gospel. We'll see it in Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing the what? The words of Christ. I hope that as we dig in, we've dug into this, you'll see the assurance. It is because of the greatness and the sovereignty of God that we can be certain that all things will contribute to God's purposes for us. God has a purpose and a plan for us, namely our conformity to the image of Christ and our resurrection. No trial can take that. No trial can touch that. That's what Paul is assuring us. That you, believer, are never forsaken. You're never condemned. You're never forgotten. You're never out of the control of what God is going on. He's sovereign. Rest in that. Namely, that there is no condemnation. No matter what you go through, believer, you are not condemned by God. Nothing. Our, our eternal destination is unalterable because God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. Nothing can stop what He desires to do. That's why, John, again, John 10, no one, you, no one can snatch you out of my hand. If you're a believer. And, and that invitation is always open. We don't make a big deal about it. We're not asking you to walk an aisle. We're not asking... Right where you are, you can repent of your sinfulness and you can trust Jesus Christ for your forgiveness. You don't need to walk an aisle to do that. You don't need to sing a song to do that. You can do that. I would encourage you to come talk to me or one of our elders about what's next if you do that. But God has made a way where even though you, as a sinner, you are against Him, He, you can, he can be for you through repentance. He will, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's nothing you've done, nothing you will do that will compromise that. And believer, if that's you today, you've already done that. How are you viewing your circumstances? Will, will you trust God no matter what? Again, going back to Philippians 1, where Paul says, For me to live is Christ and die is gain. Fill in the blank for you. For you to live is what? And if it's not Christ, listen, if it's not Christ, then death will not be gained because death will separate you from that. The reason why Paul could say that death was gained because death gave him what he treasured most, Christ. 